Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 66, Long Live the Cannon King. It may be remembered that when Alfred Krupp's father died in 1826, the business was massively in debt, the secret of cast steel still beyond the Krupp family and everybody else. But that was a long time ago, and much had changed since that day. Alfred left his father's funeral and went straight to his father's anvil in their modest factory. Now Alfred, in his sixties, had created and built up his world, where he ruled. In his last years, his power, in terms of money and influence, would grow even more. Before too long, even the Kaiser would tow the line that Alfred drew in the dirt, which meant that the Kaiser could only buy from Krupp, but Krupp could and would sell to anyone. That was how it was to be. In the 16 years between the end of the Franco-Prussian War and the approaching death of the Cannon King, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and the United States found themselves entangled in small wars, clashes really, but all wanted and bought Krupp arms. Soon, both sides of any given conflict would have Krupp cannon, but instead of being ashamed of making war so much more vicious, Alfred would proudly get both sides to declare their advantages to using his tools of death. Only Germany was not in a war, and both Berlin and Essen prospered under this rare haven of peace in a world at war. By 1880, almost 25,000 Krupp cannon were all pointing at each other, in Europe alone, but there was more. Now Krupp was building warships, and they were soon flying under different flags, threatening to disturb the peace over the waves. And Alfred, aging quite ungracefully, never stopped designing new weapons, though his mind was steadily slipping into senescence. In August of 1879, Krupp Works put on a display of a gun with a 44-centimeter or 17-inch diameter that used shells just over 2,000 pounds in weight. Next, Alfred's team worked on his latest idea, the Panzer Cannon, an armored gun, really. It was a giant shell with a massive barrel inside. It was basically a stationary tank, but it was before its time. The Kaiser, after reviewing the prototype, shook his head. Nine. There would be no orders for that thing. Not today. As for Alfred's personal life, well, that disintegrated much as his mind did. His wife, Berta, had lived in Villa Hugel when she was in Essen, but even then stayed far away from Alfred. Whenever they talked, they fought. So, talked little. But the last straw was when their son, Fritz, wanted to get married. Berta approved of the young lady, but Alfred did not. So, Berta went upstairs, which probably required a couple of minutes to journey, and then Alfred could hear curt directions being shouted. Berta was packing up everything of hers. She was leaving again, but this time not coming back. Alfred eventually gave in about the marriage, but Berta never came back. The Cannon King never saw his wife again inside their house. In the spring of 1885, Alfred's own physician, Dr. Dickon, died which inconvenienced and irritated Alfred. 
If the man couldn't save himself, what good was he to him? All that money and time wasted. His replacement, once again, was Bismarck's own doctor, Professor Schweigenger. But after looking over the skin of bones in front of him, he did not yell, stand up, but rather yelled, please lie down and stay there. And though Alfred was now forced to stay away from the factory by his son Fritz and his doctors, his mind still attempted to take the next step in weapons design. But he was past his prime. In 1887, he heard that an American electrical engineer, Hiram Maxim, had designed a crankless machine gun, which used its own recoil to fire, eject its empty cartridges, and then reload. In his lucid moments, Alfred was jealous of Maxim. But the American and the Krupp concern would know more of each other in the future. Alfred's doctor examined the patient on July 13, 1887 and found no change in his condition. This satisfied Fritz, who left for a trip. The doctor left as well, promising to check in soon. But the next day, July 14, 1887, Alfred, now 75 years old, while being supported by his valet, stiffened in his arms and then slackened, having died of a heart attack. That day just happened to be Bastille Day in France, and when word was received in Paris later that day, the rejoicing throughout was doubled. But that was France. The rest of the world acknowledged Alfred's contributions to peaceful and non-peaceful advancements, and was hailed as a founding father of the Second Reich. Of course, Alfred Krupp planned his own funeral. How could he not? The stub of a pencil was always in his hand, writing letters or giving direction. In this case, writing out how long he should be laid in state for the 20,000-plus crumpineer to pay their respects. Alfred's remains would spend three days in the massive main hall of his castle, and then one day in the cottage close by, the Stammhaus, where his father had died and where he, Alfred, was born. Over time, massive buildings would spring up as far as the eye could see, in every direction, but the Stammhaus would remain a testament to the humble beginnings of the first canon king. As the Krupp concern only had one owner, the ownership now passed to Friedrich Alfred Krupp, or Fritz, just Fritz, as he liked to be called. However, as one got what they saw with Alfred, a stern taskmaster who believed he was right about everything, Fritz was a puzzle with no one having access to all the pieces at one time, ever. Yet one can hardly blame Fritz for becoming a secretive, paranoid schizophrenic. His father drove him to despair. His mother overly loved him, but never backed off of being harsh when it was needed. Which was rare enough, but although Fritz's will was broken over and over again by his father, the son, as is the way of the world, picked up a few things from his father, subconsciously or not. The works was now his, and Fritz would do anything to protect and expand what he was now given. And his personality, whether by nature or nurture, was perfectly suited to expanding his world and influence through less than honorable means. Alfred the father had been direct, hard, 
In reaction, Fritz was sly, devious. Alfred was a broadsword. Fritz was the dagger you never saw, but soon felt in your back. For all of Alfred's rages and battles, personal and professional, his tomb would not need a guard standing over it 24 hours a day, protecting it from vandalizing, a victim's last revenge. But Fritz's would, in time. But no one saw this coming, perhaps not even Fritz, at first. Alfred was gaunt, Fritz pudgy. Alfred had the constitution of Krupp's steel. Fritz was a weakly child, whose health only slightly improved during his late teenage years. Yet he would remain pudgy, weakened, stooped, very unprussian-like. But there were parts of Alfred and Fritz. How could there not be? The new canon king, he hated that title, would never tolerate the works becoming a public company, or even worse, being run by a woman. No, his wife, Margaret, would produce a male heir. Fritz would see to it. When Alfred had still been alive, he gave his unimposing son a place on the procura, the directing board. His salary was to be 20% of the company's annual profits, or 100,000 marks, which was ever greater. Yet the money was not worth the pain his father put him in making him quit school so he could receive, and then copy, literally, every note Alfred penciled to him. That was to be his education. By age 30, Fritz looked 50, with the stress his father put him through. It should be kept in mind that this was 19th century Germany, where the patriarch ruled absolutely. To hopefully win over his father but he was wasting his time here, Fritz sought to learn the secrets of steelmaking. Not as Alfred had, working over an anvil night and day, but by learning the concepts, the art, and science of the various processes. In this way, he did master the knowing of cast steel. He also set out to learn the ways of the Krupp salesmen throughout the world, and again, as this involved no heavy lifting, did well. He was soon a known face among the capitals of China, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and the Balkan countries. But then he went to unknown territory. Unknown for Alfred, that is. By learning the processes of how Armstrong in Britain, Schneider in France, and Mitsuis in Japan made their steel. His means were cloudy, but his results were clear. He soon knew the cards his competitors were holding. Soon there were files of every major arms salesman from around the world, and his knowledge would continue to grow in every aspect of steelmaking, except, that is, how to actually stand there in the heat and pour this and that and mix this and that. Through his growing connections, all done behind Alfred's back, Fritz was there when talk began of improving and expanding the Royal German Navy in regards to projecting power around and within the African continent, as the major powers started seeking new colonies. Yet, in some ways, Fritz was too sneaky, by half. During his father's last years, his son was able to steal a contract from Schneiders of France for the Japanese, which should have caused at least a toast for the younger man. 
But his victory came from knowing the ins and outs of the Japanese needs and the weakness of the French. This was not sexy enough for Alfred, who didn't understand the sleight of hand, because Fritz's hand had been so slight. Not that it mattered, because any goodwill earned by the son would surely have died away, as his wife brought into the world two girls, Berta Antoinette and Barbara. The latter was named after the patron saint of artillery, but she was still only a girl. But time passed. Alfred died, soon followed by his estranged wife. Then on March 9, 1888, the first Kaiser passed away. Now on the throne was the humane, nay, liberal, Kron Prince, Kaiser Friedrich III. But his life and reign lasted less than 100 days, due to cancer. He was replaced by his son, the 29-year-old, handsome, intensely mustachioed Friedrich Wilhelm Victor Albert. Kaiser Wilhelm, as the world would know him, was not humane, nor liberal in his outlook. If anything, he was the exact opposite, as his first words indicated once he took power. The king's will is the supreme law of the land. The world, and certainly his subjects, had just been put on notice. Getting back to plain old Fritz, he too was ready to make his move. With his parents gone, with the first Kaiser gone, it was time to get a firm hold on the reins. Letting the procurer know, by his voice and presence, he hated memos giving his father, he would now be attending all meetings, looking over all contracts. The aged but still strong Jenek replied, Do you really want to put yourself through all that? You are not, Meinherr, a well man. Besides, isn't all this beneath you? Surely your father would say it was. But the old man and the other old men were about to find out that Fritz's body may not have been made of sterner stuff, but his mind and pride were. Fritz, just call me Fritz, did away with the procura. It would be a board, ein directorum, that would run the company, and Fritz would be at its head. But the men of the old procura knew where the bodies were buried, as it were, so Fritz moved slowly, but steadily. Members were added onto the board younger men who owed their promotions to the new canon king. And now that he had the votes, Fritz altered everything. In time, the power was back into the sole proprietor's hands. Then Essen exploded, and to be sure, it was Fritz's finger on the detonation switch. The new head of the Krupp concern had a technical school opened to train Krumpenier. A second mill was constructed, not that Fritz ever went inside. In fact, he was hardly in Essen to see his earlier works. This Krupp was his own salesman, his own foreign minister. He was also his own, or rather Krupp's, fixer. One of Alfred's biggest rivals for the last 40 years was Ermann Grusen. His still was simply just as good as Krupp's, so they avoided direct contests whenever possible. But now Fritz the snake was in charge, and not the hammer Alfred. During a short-lived financial panic in 1873, Grusen went public 
to gather enough capital to remain afloat. And the plan worked. Enough shares were sold to keep the company going. But in 1892, Grusin showed up for a board meeting to find, sitting there, Fritz. Grusin was about to go off on the young pup when the sad-eyed, round Krupp announced that he now owned 51% of Grusin AG. The old man, beaten, went home and soon died of a broken heart and shattered will. The Grusin works, which would one day make the armor for Hitler's panzers, was folded neatly into Krupp's. And Fritz had one success after another. In April of 1893, a young Rudolf Diesel came to Villa Hugel with a patent for an internal combustion engine that used auto-ignition of the fuel. The one catch was that the entire engine had to be made of steel to survive the process. That was not a problem for Fritz. Four years later, a prototype 32-horsepower diesel engine was rolled out. Hiram Maxim had a patent for his machine gun, and only Krupp, Fritz made sure, could be allowed to make it. Alfred Bernhard Mobile came knocking on the villa's door with his patent for a smokeless gunpowder called Ballistite, and Maxim's gun went perfectly with the smokeless gunpowder. Cannon could now be long and thinner with no large bottom. Everything in Essen was looking up. That is, except any cultural evolution that might have normally happened in Essen. As Krupp led the way to the future, his Kruppineer stayed here in the now, becoming more and more the past. The men worked for the Cannon King, while the women focused on the four Ks. Kitchen, bedroom, children, and church. In German, those all start with K. But the people were happy, because they were well taken care of. Soon there were Krupp maternity wards, Krupp schools, Krupp police, Krupp fire brigades, Krupp telephone exchanges, and more Krupp housing added on to what Alfred had already furnished for his people. By 1890, the Krupp sales in America for his rail wheels and lines, which had brought in tens of millions of marks a year, were drying up. Yet those losses were not missed. In fact, they were not even brought up at any board meetings. Why? Because Fritz's four new cannon factories, plus other additions, all on a massive scale, made those profits seem like child's play. Because they were. But nothing lasts forever. As long as Germany was strong, Krupp was strong. But Germany was weakening, at least internally. In 1890, Wilhelm dismissed Bismarck. He would run and rule over his country, as a proper king should. And now that he was in the, not to demote the man, captain's chair, he removed Bismarck's social, read Krupp's, programs. In the next election, the ungrateful peasants voted for the Social Democratic Party with a million and a half votes, winning 35 seats in the Reichstag. Bad news, certainly. But Krupp would use this weakened position of the Ohioist to win the shattered Kaiser to his side, against the officer corps. And Wilhelm was so grateful, he took Fritz's side on every argument between the concern and the officers, even those Alfred had always lost. From now on, what Fritz offered 
would be taken by Berlin, period. The Cannon King's Christmas list then came out. Item 1. The thickness of plating at the waterline of the Kaiser's ships had grown over the years, from four and a half inches to two feet. That was ridiculous to Fritz's thinking. Surely some kind of alloy could give the Navy the durability it needed without the extra weight or loss of space and speed. So, after throwing his considerable resources at the problem, a nickel steel was discovered. In simple terms, the alloy was held at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two weeks while coal gas was sent over its surface. Then it was treated with alternating water and heat, the hardening process. In the end, the alloy nickel steel was hard on the outside and resilient on the inside. At that moment, all other steel being used by the other's navies was worse than obsolete. But that was just the beginning. Noble's new gunpowder was so strong, it blasted bronze and steel cannon to pieces. But not the nickel steel. In a year or two, Fritz was ready for the officer corps to come and see his latest field test. Predictably, the men in the bemetalled uniforms replied, No thanks, we have what we need. Fritz then sent a note to the All-Highest, who ordered his officers to the testing ground. The tests were a success, yet a defeat for peace. Wilhelm loved all things military, weapons, and battles. He desired so much to put his new toys to the test. He just needed the right opportunity. Sales to Essen soared. Krupp's yearly profit tripled. But it wasn't enough. Nothing, or rather, everything, could ever be enough. Because Fritz remembered all the pain and humiliation his father had suffered. Yes, Germany would have the greatest weapons in the world, but Germany would not be allowed to forget where they came from. Before the Great War, there came many small wars that made that war as terrible as it was to be. During the 1890s, the six great arm manufacturers strove to outsell and outcreate each other. Krupp, Schneider, Armstrong, Vickers, Mitsui, and finally Emil von Skoda and his Austrian works. All these men became rich. Their countries and their neighbors became well-armed. Just like his father, there were times when Krupp's guns put the leader of Germany in an awkward position. The Boers of Africa, who got their guns from Essen, beat back three English armies in a week. This raised eyebrows in London. But Wilhelm was incapable of embarrassment or tact, telling the Prince of Wales, even the crackest football team, when it is beaten after a plucky game, puts on a good face and accepts defeat. And that's how the Kaiser saw war and battles. A game. A serious game, to be sure, but the ultimate game of kings, when the best would rise by standing on the bodies of those God gave less fortitude to. Twelve years after taking over, Fritz was now the official armor of Vienna, Berlin, Moscow, and Rome. Those countries, like the ones around it, believed in peace through strength. For who would dare attack a country defended by Krupp cannon? 
The answer, amazingly escaping those asking, was, others attacking with Krupp cannon. But now came Fritz's greatest triumph over everyone. With his new nickel-steel armor, Fritz offered it to the armies and navies of the world. Everyone who could afford to invest snapped up what they could. But then, Fritz came out with chrome-steel shells, which could penetrate the nickel plate. The militaries of Europe and Asia poured more money into Krupp's coffers. But wait, what's this? Now Fritz offered up his latest discovery. <clears throat> it was high-carbon armor plate. This was too strong for even the chrome-steel shells to get through. Again, everyone ponying up. Now the world's navies have the strongest material for their ships. Oh, wait. It seems that Krupp engineers had just created the capped shot. Basically shells with explosives in the nose. The reason all this worked for Fritz, as in why he wasn't tried as a flimflam man, albeit on a massive scale, was that one improvement was great for defense. Then the next discovery was good for offense, which negated the defense. The newer technology had to be had, but then the quality of defensive materials was improved. But when money was invested in that, those proponents of the offensive got something even better. Hence, the world's leading nations could not afford to be without what Fritz had to offer. To do so would jeopardize that country's safety. Unthinkable. But all this was just the beginning of the gouging of the financial assets of the developed countries in Europe and Asia. When Schneiders of France came out with their 75mm field piece that absorbed its own shock, which meant the gun would not have to be re-aimed for each shot, Krupp announced that his factory had just perfected their own recoil cylinder gun, just as buckproof as the French, and it was made of the finest Krupp steel. The German general staff was too relieved to put two and two together. Was it possible, Herr Krupp, that you had this waiting in the wings and only brought it out to your and not Germany's advantage? Yet perhaps the most profitable but egregious move Fritz made was when he allowed Vickers of Britain in 1902 to reproduce and sell his timed fuses. They were simply the best in the world, and Vickers wanted them for his customers. But each one was to be stamped KP, small z, Krupp patent. Of course, if Britain and Germany ever went to war, no matter who won or lost, Fritz would make one shilling threepence from each shell fired. But that's for another day. But for all of this money and success, power and influence, the head of the Krupp concern had a secret that if anyone discovered would cause this business tycoon to be driven from Teutonic Germany forever.